for the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast. I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Today, you're listening to Episode 17, the 1997 running of the Winston All-Star Race from the Charlotte Motor Speedway in Concord, North Carolina. The race would be run on May 17, 1997. The format for the race would be a 30-lap first segment. After the first 30 laps, the entire field that was still running would be inverted. So in other words, the car that finished in last position would start first, and the cars that won the first segment would start last. And then there would be a 10-lap so-called dash for the cash. There would be no live pit stops in this edition of the Winston. So after they would throw the caution flag, the cars would be able to come to pit road and have approximately five to 10 minutes to make adjustments on their cars. And they would come out in the same exact position that they were running for the final 10 lap segment. Obviously for the first segment, they would invert the field. Now the Winston also had some different rules. They would have side-by-side restarts, uh, double foul restarts for all restarts after cautions. You would not have a situation where you would have a single foul restart and lap cars on the bottom of the racetrack. Remember, at this time in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, we were a long time away from lead lap double foul restarts. The leaders of the race started on the outside and the cars lap down started on the inside. Of course, at the Winston, it's very unlikely that anyone would still be running who was lapped down. So NASCAR instituted side-by-side restarts and also the ability to wave off a restart if they felt like uh, it was someone had an unfair jump to as well without penalizing a driver and black flagging them for the first jump. So when we talk about the Winston, this would be the 13th running of the all-star race. It was created in 1985 and it had some very memorable moments through the years. The first race, Daryl Walchip won. And of course he blew his engine right as he crossed the start finish line. And there was a lot of questions about, you know, if it was a trick engine or a legal engine. 1987, one of the most exciting moments of the Winston, the so-called pass in the grass by Dale Earnhardt, when he actually did not allow Bill Elliott to pass him, and also was a great three-car duel between Elliott, Earnhardt, and Bodine, but eventually Dale Earnhardt came up out on top. In 1989, we had the race in which Rusty Wallace spun out Darrell Waltrip coming to the white flag, uh, and that was a very controversial race as Wallace went to victory lane. And the Kodiak crew for Rusty Wallace and Darrell Walchip's crew kind of got in a brawl as their team went to victory lane too as well. And we had the famous quote about Darrell Walchip saying that he hopes Rusty chokes on his money too as well. And this, of course, was kind of one of the moments that kind of humanized Darrell Waltrip. He, uh, in the 80s, was a lot like Jeff Gordon. Fans either loved him or hated him. But a lot of people got on Waltrip's side after that, after that incident with Rusty Wallace. After a couple not extremely exciting Winstons, in 1992, NASCAR decided that the race would be held under the lights. Now, they remember had never run a race under the lights at a track bigger than a short track. So basically, when you look at the late 80s to early 90s, your night races were Bristol, the night race in late August, and then you had a night race in Richmond in September. And NASCAR, for the most part, tried to avoid night races because they didn't want to hurt local racetracks that ran Saturday night shows. So for the most part, they tried to stay away from having night races. So in 1992, they kind of had the Winston. They ran that race under the lights with anticipation of hoping that they could run the Coca-Cola from a day to night race and also get it away from the Indy 500, especially because the Indy 500 was kind of at the height of its popularity in the late eighties to early nineties too, as well. So of course they termed that race one hot night and it was an absolutely incredible last lap of the race. You had Dale Earnhardt leading the race, but Cal Petty was coming up strong on him. 
And what basically happened was Earnhardt took a bad angle where he could not make the corner in turn three, and he wrecked. And that left Cal Petty and Davey Allison battling for the victory. Allison just slightly nosed ahead, and as the cars came to the start-finish line, Cal Petty made contact with Davey Allison. He won the race but slammed hard driver's side impact into the front stretch wall at Charlotte. He won the race but was in a shower of sparks, as Mike Joyce said. Wasn't even able to go to victory lane. He had to head to the hospital. 1995 was also a very exciting race in the Winston. So on the final restart, it was Earnhardt, Waltrip, and Jeff Gordon. And Gordon backed off going to turn three as Waltrip and Earnhardt were side by side. And they took each other out. And Gordon shot to the bottom of the racetrack. Jeff won all three segments on his way to victory. In 1996, we had an underdog victory. Michael Waltrip had finished in the top five in the Winston Open as they had led five cars transfer. And in the race, when Terry Labonte and Dale Earnhardt got together in turn one, Waltrip was able to shoot underneath them and take the victory, giving Michael Waltrip a NASCAR Winston Cup win, but not in a points-paying race. And him always saying that famous quote, I'm the only driver who's won a race who's never actually won a race. So fans were hoping that the 1997 Winston would be another exciting race. Really, in the 90s, we had had you know, really three really solid races when you look at 92, 95, and 96 too as well. So qualifying for the Winston was a little bit different. The drivers would run three laps, but they would also have to make a pit stop too as well. And the pole sitter would be Bill Elliott. Dale Earnhardt was second quick. Sterling Marlin was third quick. Michael Waltrip was fourth quick. Bobby Labonte rounded out the top five. Dale Jarrett qualified sixth. Rusty Wallace qualified seventh. Mark Martin was eighth fastest. Jeff Burton, who got in the race to Winston due to winning at Texas earlier in the season, was ninth quick. Jeff Bodine, a former winner of the Winston in 1994, was 10th quick. Terry Labonte was 11th quick. Ricky Rudd, 12th quick. 13th fastest was Bobby Hamilton. Ward Burton was 14th fastest. Cal Petty was 15th fastest. Ernie Irvin had the 16th fastest effort. Darrell Waltrip was 17th fastest. Jimmy Spencer was 18th fastest. And Jeff Gordon had came down too hard into the pits and couldn't stop and had to settle for 19th. He would be the next to last starter other than the driver that would transfer in in the Winston Open. Now, 1997 was right on the fringe of when some drivers started to have special paint schemes for the races. And there really would be three special paint schemes for the 1997 Winston. Dale Earnhardt had a special weedy scheme with an orange color car. Darrell Waltrip had his chrome car number 17, of course, as he was celebrating his 25th year in racing. And Jeff Gordon would have the Jurassic Park, the ride car. Those would be really the only three special schemes. And of course, Earnhardt had kind of kicked off this special paint scheme thing in 1995 running of the Winston. It was the 25th anniversary of Winston's involvement in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. And Dale Earnhardt decided to drive a silver car. They called it the silver wrench car with uh, uh, good wrench colors, but silver. In 1996, he had run an Olympic scheme uh, with the Olympics being in Amer- in the U.S. in Atlanta. And, of course, 1997, he had this Wheaties scheme. Jeff Gordon, for the first time, had a special paint scheme with the Jurassic Park scheme. It always seemed like the rules were a bit ever-changing of which drivers qualified for the Winston. NASCAR had always stated that if you had won a race in the current season or in the previous season, that you would be locked in into the Winston. In addition to that, they allowed any former NASCAR Winston Cup champion to be a part of the race. Also, if you'd won the Winston All-Star Race within the past five years, you got an automatic qualification spot as well. To 
NASCAR always wanted a field of 20 starters. So then they would typically go back to a couple years further to allow other drivers in the field too as well. They allowed 1995 winners such as Cal Petty and Ward Burden in the field, along with the 1994 winner in Jimmy Spencer. So 19 drivers automatically locked in based upon the rules for that season. And one driver would get to transfer in in the Winston Open race, which would be held directly before the Winston. And these were all the drivers that were unable to qualify automatically for the Winston. Chad Little in the number 97 Pontiac had won the pole and he would lead the first 20 laps of the race. Lake Speed was able to get around Chad Little on lap 21, and he would lead the next eight laps. Ricky Craven passed Lake Speed with 22 laps to go, and it started from the third position. Craven would beat Steve Grissom to the start-finish line by just over half a second. Lake Speed ran third, Chad Little ran fourth, and Hutch Strickland ran fifth, which was a pretty impressive finish for Hutch Strickland who started 16th. This was a great day for really all five drivers in the Winston Open, although only Ricky Craven and number 25 Budweiser Chevrolet for Rick Hendrick would qualify for the Winston. It was really a good day for the rest of the drivers, too, as well. It had been up and down season for Steve Grissom. He had some good runs, but had also had a lot of bad luck. Lake Speed was still fighting for a sponsor, and it certainly didn't hurt to have TV time with his car out in front. Chad Little had missed quite a few races and was looking for a shot in the arm. And this was a great day for him. And the same went for Hutch Strickland. His performance had not been all that great in the 1997 season. So to get a top five and come from 16th position had to be a shot in the arm for Hutt too. The flashballs were popping and anticipation was reaching a fevered pitch at Charlotte Motor Speedway in Concord, North Carolina, as the field lined up to start prepare for the first segment, which would be 30 laps in length. And the cars were lined up in 10 rows side by side. Many fans were anticipating a very exciting start with Bill Elliott on the bottom of the racetrack and Dale Earnhardt starting on the top. Elliott was able to get a good start and pull away from Earnhardt in turn one. But in the second lap, Dale Earnhardt was able to drive below Bill Elliott and, and get the lead going into turn three. But Earnhardt drove too hard into turn three and Bill Elliott was able to pull the crossover move and duck back under Dale Earnhardt. Meanwhile, Sterling Marlin tried to charge up to the outside of Dale Earnhardt, but wasn't able to get around him. The first caution of the race would come out on lap four when Bobby Labonte had contact from Mark Varden. He spun through the front stretch grass, looped around, and Jimmy Spencer barely squeezed by the 18 car as it worked its way back toward the outside retaining wall. Under this caution, Jeff Bodine and Bobby Labonte decided to pit. After the restart, Earnhardt was able to clear Bill Elliott going into turn two. And Dale Jarrett was able to relegate Bill Elliott to the third position after he made a pass in turn three. Meanwhile, Jeff Gordon was charging up through the field. After his problems in the quali qualifying, he had to start at the back of the field. But by the 10th lap, he had already worked his way up to the 10th position. Dale Jarrett was able to get to the outside of Dale Earnhardt a couple laps later in turn two, but Earnhardt was able to hold him off going into turn three. On the next lap, Dale Jarrett was finally able to get around Dale Earnhardt and take the lead. 15 laps into the race, Jeff Gordon continued his charge through the field in the T-Rex car as he got around Michael Waltrip and moved into the sixth position. 18 laps into the race, play-by-play -play announcer Eli Gold announced that Ernie Irvin had blown his engine and had, as had Bobby Hamilton as well. Both cars were out of the race. Meanwhile, Dale Earnhardt was charging back up on Dale Jarrett 
and he was able to get to the inside of Dale Jarrett in turn four and regain the lead. 19 laps into the race, and now Jeff Gordon was all the way up to the fourth position. On lap 25, Dale Jarrett was able to repass Dale Earnhardt on the outside of turn four. Gordon continued his charge up through the field, and he was able to get around Bill Elliott on the outside of turn two with four laps to go. Dale Jarrett was able to hold Dale Earnhardt off and win $50,000 for winning the first segment. Earnhardt finished second, Jeff Gordon was third, Bill Elliott was fourth, and Mark Martin finished in the fifth position at the conclusion of the first segment. Now the drivers would get the opportunity to come to pit road. These would not be live pit stops. The crews could raise the hood up and make adjustments on the cars that they felt necessary, and they would invert the field. So after a 10-minute break between segment one and segment two, the cars headed back out on the racetrack inverted. Two cars had fallen out in the first segment. Bobby Hamilton, Ernie Irvin had both had engine problems, so that left 18 cars running. So the driver who had won the first segment, Dale Jarrett, would start 18th. Dale Earnhardt, who had finished second in the first segment, would start 17th. Jeff Gordon, who was third, would start 16th. Bill Elliott, who was fourth, would start 15th. So you get the picture. So that meant that the last place car would start first. So Terry Labonte was going to be on the pole, and his brother Bobby Labonte was going to be the outside. Ricky Craven would start third. Jeff Bodine would start fourth. Sterling Marlin would start fifth. And Rusty Wallace would start sixth. It would be another 30-lap session for the segment before they would throw another yellow flag and prepare for the final 10-lap shootout. It's always interesting in these races where they decided to invert the field you know that in that second segment, you're going to have comers and goers. You're going to have some guys start up front that are going to drop through the field, and you're going to have some drivers that are at the back that are going to come toward the front. You also never know how much sandbag is going on amongst some of the drivers too as well. I mean, if it's late in the segment and you know that the entire field is going to be inverted and you're running like 15th or 16th, why wouldn't you just drop all the way to the back of the field at that point in time? Bobby Labonte, it was hard to know how strong his car was at all because he had spun out in the first segment. Ricky Craven and Terry Labonte had to start toward the back of the field. So when they got the restart, Terry Labonte was able to quickly grab the lead in turn two, and the driver who was fading back was Daryl Waltrip. He quickly faded back to the tail end of the field in 18th position. Five laps into the race, Jeff Gordon, who had started 16th, was passing Rusty Wallace to move up to the ninth position as Wallace appeared to not have the handle very well today and his car was fading back. Ricky Craven continued to run well. He was in the third position and Dale Jarrett, who had to start all the way out back after winning the first segment, had worked his way up to the 11th position. Ten laps into the race, Jeff Gordon continued his charge to the front as he got around Sterling Marlin and moved into the seventh position. On lap 44, 14 laps into the second segment, Bobby Labonte was able to take the lead from his brother, Terry Labonte. With 15 laps to go, Jeff Gordon moved up to the fifth position, and Dale Jarrett was able to pass Jeff Bodine and move into the sixth position. Earnhardt and Bodine had an excellent side-by-side battle, and eventually he was able to pass Jeff Bodine in turn three with 14 laps to go in the segment, and Earnhardt had moved up to seventh. So both Jarrett, Gordon, and Earnhardt were all kind of moving up through the field in unison. Jeff Burton was able to grab eighth position from Jeff Bodine with 12 laps to go in the segment. Meanwhile, Bobby Labonte was getting gone, pulling well away from his brother, Terry Labonte. With 10 laps to go, the top five was Bobby Labonte, Terry Labonte, Ricky Craven in third, Jeff Gordon fourth, and a good day for Jimmy Spencer in the fifth position. Terry Labonte 
began to see his teammate Ricky Craven close in on him in the closing laps of the second segment. Jeff Gordon had kind of settled in after making a charge to the field. He had worked his way up to the fourth position, but he was now about five seconds behind Bobby Labonte. Craven continued to inch closer and closer to Terry Labonte, and he was within about two car lengths with four laps to go. Bobby Labonte had totally gotten gone from the entire field, and he had a nearly four-second lead on his brother, Terry Labonte. Labonte came back around after taking the white flag, and Bobby easily cruised to the segment two victory, picking up $50,000. Terry Labonte ran second in the segment. Ricky Craven was third. Jeff Gordon finished fourth in the segment after having their restart 16th. Jimmy Spencer was fifth. Dale Jarrett finished sixth after starting 18th. Earnhardt finished seventh after starting 17th. Jeff Burton was eighth. Jeff Bodine was ninth. And rounding out the top 10 was Mark Martin, and he had started in the 15th position. Bill Elliott ended up 11th in the running order. So it's interesting to kind of look at it. There was pretty good progress made back through the field for certainly Gordon, for Dale Jarrett, and for Earnhardt. They had all got themselves around the top five or six, which would give them a shot to be able to win things in the final segment. And in terms of who had started up front, Bobby Labonte and Terry Labonte both started in the front row, and they both were able to maintain that position, as Ricky Craven did a good job too as well. But guys like Rusty Wallace and Sterling Marlin really struggled. They got the start up front. Marlin faded to the 14th position, and Rusty faded to the 17th position. While, as we talked about earlier, the Labonte brothers were all able to stay in the top three along with Ricky Craven. Gordon was able to be the driver who was the highest of the inverted cars that had gone well to the back of the field, being able to finish to the top five in fourth position. So the cars pulled back down the pit road. Again, we would not have live pit stops. There would be no inverts. So where you finish the second segment is where you would restart for the third segment. Again, the teams had about seven to 10 minutes to make any final adjustments that they wanted to make on the race cars before we would prepare for the final 10 lap dash for the cash segment. Segment three of the 1997 Winston would be the 10 lap dash for the $200,000 in cash. Bobby Labonte would be on the pole position with his brother Terry to the outside. Ricky Craven would start third and his Hendrick teammate Jeff Gordon would be the outside of him in fourth. The fifth place starter would be Jimmy Spencer and Dale Jarrett would start sixth, Earnhardt seventh, Jeff Burden eighth, Jeff Bodine in ninth, and Mark Martin in tenth. It would be an electrifying first lap. As the field got the green flag, Gordon tried to get the outside of his teammate Ricky Craven. Bobby Labonte, who had got a good start, was now watching his brother push past him on the outside. Down the back straightaway, Bobby Labonte got a big push from Ricky Craven and sailed his car off into turn three. He was not able, though, to get clear of his brother. And what eventually happened was is that Jeff Gordon was able to get around both Ricky Craven and Bobby Labonte and move into the second position. Craven, meanwhile, fought, faded back and dropped all the way back to the sixth position. As they came down to complete the first lap of the final segment, Jimmy Spencer actually went into the grass, kicked up a bunch of dirt, but then was able to work his way to the outside of Bobby Lamonte. Meanwhile, Jeff Gordon wasn't going to waste any time getting the lead. With his car running right on the bottom of the racetrack, he was able to get inside of Terry Lamonte off of turn two. Spencer attempted to make an outside pass on Bobby Lamonte for third, but was unsuccessful. Jeff Gordon was able to get clear of Terry Lamonte off of turn four. The TV crew reported that Rusty Wallace had blown his engine and was headed to the garage area. 
The engine woes continued for Rusty Wallace. He had blown up at Sears Point, blown up in the Winston 500 at Talladega, and now had an engine problem at the Winston as well. Dale Jarrett and Dale Earnhardt were able to pass Ricky Craven and move into the fourth and fifth position, respectively. Bobby Labonte began to close in on his brother with six laps to go, and he was only about one car length back. He was able to get to the inside of his brother in turn two and complete the pass in turn number three. With four laps to go, Jeff Gordon was continuing to pull away from his competition, but it was a great tooth-and-nail battle between Dale Earnhardt and Jimmy Spencer. Earnhardt was able to get around Spencer and move his way up into the fourth position, but Spencer wasn't going to give up easily, and he fought back hard off of turn two. With two laps to go, Gordon had pulled away from Bobby Labonte by 1.1 seconds. Spencer was able to re-clear Dale Earnhardt, and the field came to the white flag. Gordon had no problem, and as he brought the car nailed to the bottom of the racetrack off turns three and four, easily to the checkered flag, and won the 1997 Winston. With his win in the Winston, Jeff Gordon had now won two of the last three Winstons, also being victorious in the 1995 season. He had swept both non-points races in NASCAR Winston Cup and used special paint schemes in both races, too, as well. Gordon had only led nine laps in the race, mainly due to his poor qualifying effort. So he had to start 19th in the first segment and was able to impressively work his way all the way up to the third position in just 30 laps. So he had to go towards the back again for the second segment, starting 16th and working his way up to the fourth position. In the final segment, he started fourth, but by the second lap, he had already picked up the lead and was able to easily cruise his way to the victory in the Winston and collect a payday of over $200,000. Bobby Labonte had run second and led 17 laps and had overcome that early race spin where his car nearly got hit on the front stretch. Terry Labonte, Gordon's Hendrick teammate, finished third and he had led 14 laps. It had been a really solid day for Dale Earnhardt in that orange-colored Wheaties-sponsored car. He had finished fourth, he had led 11 laps and showed a lot of competitiveness throughout the race and that had the three-team feeling that they were starting to turn the corner. It was a great day for Jimmy Spencer who had come home fifth. Mark Martin ended up finishing 6th, Dale Jarrett was 7th, Ricky Craven, who had transferred from the Open, finished 8th, the ninth place finisher was Ricky Rudd, Bill Elliott, the pole sailor, had led 11 laps and ended up 10th, Jeff Bodine was 11th, Jeff Burden was 12th, Ward Burden finished 13th, Cal Petty finished 14th, Sterling Marlin finished 15th, it was the brothers Michael and Daryl Waltrip, 16th and 17th, Rusty Wallace, Ernie Irvin, and Bobby Hamilton rounded out the final three finishing positions as they all did not finish the race due to engine problems. It took just under 40 minutes to complete the race and the average speed of the race was just under 158 miles an hour. There were eight lead changes among six drivers, although there were five lead changes in the first segment alone. Jeff Korn's margin of victory over Bobby Labonte was just over a second. There was only one on-track caution due for Bobby Labonte's spin in the first segment and two cautions at the end of each stage. So the big story from this race, first off, would be Jeff Gordon's car. So if you know anything about this race, there's a lot of myth and legend that goes into this. But basically, Hendrick had decided to build a next-generation chassis, and they wanted to throw some new concepts at the car. What a lot of people noticed was that the valence was extremely high off the ground when it was sitting on pit road and going down the straightaway, but that valence was sucked to the racetrack through the corner. And as a result, Gordon had an excellent handling car. Also, the frame rails were bigger on the car, and it made the chassis more resistant to twisting forces as well. 
They also had done some work on the undercarriage part of the car to make it more aerodynamic. NASCAR spent quite a bit of time tearing this race car down after Jeff Gordon's victory. And in some discussions with Ray Evernham, they basically told him, look, this car was legal for this race, but we're going to make rules to no longer make this car legal anymore at all. Evernham and Hendrick were frustrated, knowing that they'd put a lot of time and effort into this chassis. And Evernham had argued that Jeff Gordon's talent was, was what made this car work so well. And also, you know, it didn't look like Gordon was as dominant in this race because of him having to start at the back of two of the segments. So he wasn't able to just be up front and easily pulled away. But it was clear he had an incredibly strong car coming through the field. The other big story from the Winston was a lot of the Ford drivers' unhappiness with the recent rules changes. So the best finishing Ford in this race was Jimmy Spencer, who had finished fifth. Mark Martin was sixth. Dale Jarrett was seventh. And they still had Ricky Rudd in ninth and Bill Elliott in 10th. So if you look at it, they still had five Fords within the top 10. But GM had swept the top three, four positions with Gordon winning, Bobby Labonte in a Pontiac second, Terry Labonte in the Chevy third, and Dale Earnhardt in a Chevy fourth too as well. So Mark Martin was one who especially complained the most, saying that it wasn't fair, that their spoiler was the same level of spoiler to Chevy, and that it clearly showed that they were being hurt in downforce. Dale Jarrett also complained too as well. Dale Earnhardt never won, not afraid to get a jab in on someone, said that they should send some towels over to Mark Martin because he's crying so much about the rules. There had been a lot of arguments about the rules in the 1997 Winston Cup season, and Ford was having a pretty good season thus far. And it's hard to argue that Ford was struggling that much on downforce tracks. If you look at it, they had won at Atlanta, which is downforce is important. They had won at Darlington. They had won at Texas. So it was a little bit hard to say that necessarily Ford was at that much of a disadvantage. Of course, that was previous to NASCAR made changes to the rules of the spoiler too as well. So when we look back at this Winston, it didn't have a lot of extremely exciting moments, had a pretty good racing, the first two or three laps to the lead in the final segment, and some pretty good racing back as Spencer and Earnhardt and Dale Jarrett battled in the last segment, but it wasn't really necessarily a classic race. This race will most be remembered for the T-Rex car that got banned and how good Jeff Gordon piloted that car and how strong the car was. Also, you know, when we look toward future Winstons, and a lot of people talk about why did this race lose its luster? Well, as I make some editorial comments, I think that a lot had to do with just the changing nature of NASCAR. So the Winston in 1997 was really only one of four races that was really run under the lights. So you had the Bristol Fall Race in August, the Richmond Race in September, which were both night races on a short track. You had the Coca-Cola 600, which started during the day and transitioned to the night, and you had the Winston. So it was pretty special to have a night race. You only really had four night races, one of them being a non-points paying race. But as time went on, we got more and more night races in NASCAR to the point where we were almost up to like a quarter to a third of the races being run at night. So that took a little bit of specialness away. In the 1997 Winston, we saw maybe about three cars have special paint schemes. Dale Earnhardt with the orange car with the Wheaties color, Jeff Gordon with that awesome Jurassic Park Universal Studios paint scheme, and then Daryl Waltrip with his chrome car. As we moved on years in the Winston, we saw more and more teams go with special schemes, but we also saw special schemes start to populate more everyday races too as well, promoting different 
sponsorship ideas. And as time went on in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, we got to the point where teams were having multiple sponsors because of the expense. And it just took some of the specialness away of special paint schemes exclusively for the Winston because it became more of an everyday type of thing. We were very used to how the cars were painted for most of the regular races in the 1997 season. So to see a Dale Earnhardt car in orange with the Wheaties colors or to see Jeff Gordon with uh, Jurassic Park, the ride car with that big T-Rex on the hood instead of the familiar multicolored DuPont colors, it was a lot different. And that's something that I feel like the specialness got taken away because we started to have multiple sponsors um, on cars and lots of specialty schemes at all different types of races. You look at the double foul restarts that became not as special when NASCAR started instituting double foul restarts with the lead lab cars. And honestly, aero became so important at Charlotte that the racing just wasn't as good as it once was at Charlotte. You know, even though aero was getting important in the mid to late nineties, you still saw pretty competitive racing. You still saw two pretty good grooves that would make for interesting racing and drivers really going at it. And aero push was a factor, but not as big of a factor as we got into the early 2000s, especially. So, you know, we had less of follow the leader and more opportunity for drivers to make bold moves. I have been a huge advocate for them to make major changes to the all-star race. One of the biggest suggestions I've had is to take the race to a short track. And I'm not just talking about like a couple years back when they ran at Bristol. I'd like to see them run in a short track that's not currently on the NASCAR Winston Cup schedule so of course you know they're 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 rebuilding and fixing up north wilkesboro that could be an unbelievable place to run an all-star race what about tracks like south boston virginia or hickory or greenville pickens or nashville fairgrounds that all have a great history in nascar racing and my recommendation would be yeah you're going to sacrifice a little bit on the crowd but the all-star race has traditionally struggled to draw a good crowd and it's giving back to the sport to go to one of the short tracks. And we know that the short tracks are going to produce some of the best racing. We had very good tight racing at the Bush Clash this year, which, of course, was run at the Los Angeles Coliseum track that they created. So here's my suggestion for a new format for the NASCAR All-Star Race. First of all, the location. I would advocate that they run at a short track and not a current short track that's on the Cup Series schedule. Instead, I would recommend they go to a historic short track, such as the Nashville Fairgrounds track, Greenville Pickens in South Carolina, Hickory, South Boston, Virginia. You get the picture, a track that has a lot of history in NASCAR racing and is going to produce good, tight racing. Now, obviously, NASCAR would sacrifice a bit of how many fans could attend this race, but they could probably set up temporary stands if they really wanted to. And the All-Star race hasn't been that well attended from that perspective anyways. In addition... In terms of changing the format, my recommendation would be the night before to run a late model race and the winner of that late model race will advance into the Winston and have the opportunity to take on all the big boys on Saturday night. Now for this local race, it would have to truly be local drivers that were somewhat in the regional area and not a driver that has dabbled in any of the major three NASCAR series, such as the NASCAR Cup Series, the Xfinity Series, or um, the Truck Series. And then that winner would have the opportunity to start on the pole and they would get a Winston Cup prepared race car for one of the major teams that would prepare the car for them. Uh, I would also forget about pit stops. You're going to be on a very small track where you can't really have live pit stops. And honestly, we really want to see the driver talent 
show through in a race like this. We enjoy the team aspect of the sport and the pit stops. We have the pit stops that impact all of the other 36 races that are run from that perspective. So that's how I would change things. I think going to a short track would be amazing, especially a historic short track that hasn't typically seen the Cup Series. I think it would draw a huge crowd. It's giving back to the grassroots of the sport. And then you have this intriguing situation where you have the hometown hero taking on all the great drivers in the NASCAR Cup Series. All right, so thank you for joining us for this review of the 1997 Winston and indulging me on my recommendations for future all-star races in the Cup Series. Next week, we'll be discussing the Coca-Cola 600 run Memorial Day weekend at Charlotte. For the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast, I'm Tim Naiman. Thanks for joining me.